Welcome to The Mastering Show. This is the show where we cover all aspects of mastering. Hope you guys enjoy the show. I'm Steve Cherbino, just one of your hosts. And joining me as always, my co-host, the man who brings the knowledge to the show, the master of mastering himself, Ian Shepard. Welcome to episode two of The Mastering Show. In episode one, we kind of talked about what is mastering and gave you a general introduction to the kind of things that we're going to be talking about on the show. Um, And now we get down to some more details. And I thought we would kick things off with an episode called The Three M's of Mastering. And would you like to know what the three M's are, Steve? I think I could figure it out. I think it stands for Massive by Native Instruments, um, Meatballs. I don't know. What are they, Ian? It was a good start, but you you blew it on the meatballs. Yeah, I'm hungry. Um, the three M's are monitoring, metering, and mindset. So we'll tackle each of those in turn. Um, and the first one is monitoring. And this is absolutely crucial because, I mean, if you go to a professional mastering engineer, the main thing you're paying for is his or her experience, their ears, um, and maybe some fancy pieces of gear they have lying around. But the most important piece of gear they have is the monitoring, the thing they listen to the music on. I mean, if you think of just a ridiculous example, if you wanted to master music and you were using a TV to listen to the sound, most modern flat screen TVs have horrendous sound quality. So the chances are the speakers have no bass. They might have a super hyped top end. They're going to have all kinds of resonances at different frequencies. You can still master on them. You optimize your music to sound the best it possibly can coming from those speakers. But when you take it and move it to any other set of speakers in the world, it's going to sound ridiculous. If there's no bass on the speakers you're using, you're going to pile too much in. If you're listening to something that has a really hyped top end, you won't put enough top end into your master. And you're going to miss out on probably one of the key goals of mastering, which is translation, which is not only making it sound as good as it can possibly sound, but on the widest possible range of uh, listening equipment. So if somebody listens to it in a car where the huge bass bins, it's going to sound the way they expect. And if they listen to it on a mobile phone with a tiny little speaker, it'll sound the way they expect. And if they listen to it on a really good hi-fi, it's going to sound fantastic. So monitoring is absolutely crucial. And I mean, if you go to a professional mastering studio, chances are the speakers cost more than an expensive family car. Um, That doesn't mean that that's what you need if you're interested in mastering your own music. You can still get great results without that, but it's much harder. And I guess the biggest thing that gets in the way is the fact that chances are you're going to be trying to master the music on the same speakers and in the same room that you recorded and mixed it in. Right. So whatever kind of uh, poor information you're getting from that listening situation, it's going to be the same when you master it. And one of the important things about mastering is coming to the music with a completely fresh set of ears and trying to listen to it objectively. So that's not a disaster. There are there are different things you can do to to get around that. And I might talk about that some more when I talk about the mindset, because that's that whole kind of having a having an objective perspective on the music is is what I mean by the mastering mindset. It has been brought up in uh the EDM producer podcast I do, one of my other shows, where guys are very happy with their mix. These producers, the EDM producers are very happy with their mix. They're like, I don't need mastering, my mix is fine. 
And I started saying to myself, yeah, they're right. Why can't you just do everything in the mix? And if you're happy with your mix, why do you need to master? And then one of my listeners wrote in and said, yeah, but what if your monitors are crap? <laughs> and it's just like you're talking about. Your mix sounds great on your monitors, but that doesn't mean that's the true sound and the translation is going to be crap. And then you have people wearing Beats headphones all day long and thinking they're the best. I feel sorry for those people. Anyway, they mix on Beats and then their stuff just sounds terrible and everything else. So master monitoring is key. Absolutely. I mean, one way to think about it is imagine you were um, you worked in TV and you were color grading the picture. You know, the, the, the footage comes through from the cameras and you're making sure that everybody looks like they're human and that trees look green and the sky looks blue, uh, all that kind of stuff. If you're wearing a pair of green glasses, everything you see is going to be tinted green. Right. So you're not going to put enough green into the image and you're going to hype everything else up to try and compensate. Yep. Same thing applies with speakers. It's like having a filter across, in, it's literally like having a filter across in front of your ears. And it's not even as simple as necessarily buying a really good pair of speakers because the the room that we're in has a huge influence on the sound. I mean, probably the most effective and cost-effective way of upgrading your studio, your listening environment, is to get some acoustic treatment for your studio. So I'm not talking about the foam that you put on the walls <laughs> or egg cups or any of that kind of stuff. You need uh, big, chunky acoustic panels. You, they don't have to be expensive. You can make them yourself. All they have inside them is this uh, rigid fiberglass material. It's the same stuff they use as insulation inside drywall, um, you know, the, the stud work walls that we use in modern homes. It's great thermal insulation. It's great sound insulation. If you, It's a particular have, type of fiberglass. What's the number? The, it's like Owens 7 something. Oh, yeah, Owens Corning. Uh, no, I forget the number. Okay. It's um, seven if people are interested in this, there was a series of videos I did on, on my website um, about setting up my home mastering studio where I'm recording this now. Um, so we could put the link to that in the show notes if they really want to dig into it. Um, the, the point is you have to do something. You could have the best pair of speakers in the world and a perfectly proportioned room. And if you have no acoustic treatment, it could still sound horrendous because every room uh, will have some frequencies where the sound builds up and somewhere it cancels out and you get dips in the frequency response, nulls. And those will fool you in exactly the same way that wearing a pair of Beats headphones will fool you. Right. You're not hearing the genuine sound. And luckily, it's it's affordable and uh, and manageable to correct that yourself. You know, there's an Owens Corning factory I drive past every once in a while down here near Tampa, Florida. And I've just been so, dying to go in there and be like, hey, do you guys have in the back have like just any throwaway like <laughs> Owens fiberglass, like 707 or whatever it's called? And that's where you need to go. I, yeah. I was thinking about starting a business for acoustic treatment right next to the factory. Yeah. Might have a problem with that, especially now you've mentioned it on a podcast. But anyway, that's. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's that's more than enough about monitoring. Okay. Um, there Actually, there's one other thing I'm going to say about monitoring but I'm going to save it to the end um, because I thought what might be cool on these uh, episodes is to, at the end of every episode, give a mastering maxim. Maxim meaning uh, a truth, um, something to hold on to, uh, just a kernel of wisdom uh, that you can take away and do something with straight after this podcast. So 
I'm going to give you one of those to do with monitoring at the end of the show. Cool. All right. So we're to the second M now. What was that again? The second M is metering. So ultimately, like I said in the last show, mastering all sound work is about what we hear. But I mean, say, for example, your room is not great. Um, if you're playing music that you think should sound fantastic and it doesn't, and you feel like oh, maybe it's lacking a little bit of 100 hertz or whatever it is, how do you know? One way is to listen on another system that's better, but how do you know that that system is reliable as opposed to your system? Another way to go is to use some kind of metering. So as far as EQ response is concerned, you'd be using an analyzer that shows you the frequency response of the music as a visual, as a, as a curve. Okay. You also get metering that tells you information about the levels and the loudness of music. You get metering that will tell you information about the stereo field of the music, how much stereo information there is in what you're listening to. I mean, there's more and more stuff coming out. If any of you guys have got uh, the Ozone mastering plugins from Isotope, uh, you can get a metering package there called Insight, which has a whole range of different... There's a spectrograph, there's all kinds of stuff in there. Um, NewGen make a thing called the Visualizer. Um, Blue Cat do some kind of... Everybody now has their kind of their analysis suite. Um, for me, the most important thing or the two most important metering uh, tools that you need are one that will tell you about loudness and one that will tell you about EQ. So if we talk about loudness first, I think the first thing to say is loudness is different from peak level. So peak level is what you see in every door that has ever been. Those uh, meters are following the the outline of the waveform, if you like. You know when you zoom in on the waveform in the... In the, in the display, you can see that the kind of, you know, there's a little line and incredibly detailed going up and down. That's what the peak level is tracing. I see. Um, and it's pretty much useless for loudness. It's important that you don't clip it because um, that will sound bad. So it is useful to some extent, but in mastering, I'm almost uninterested in the peak. That's not quite true. Can you define um, loudness? That's where it gets tricky. Okay. It's actually surprisingly difficult to measure loudness. Now, luckily, uh, this has been solved. When I say it's been solved, what I mean is there is now an international standard method of measuring loudness. It's not perfect, um, because loudness is how loud the music sounds to us, right? But that depends on our ears. Um, so having something that completely emulates what our ears think about sound is the tricky part. But the so the the new meters they use a thing called a loudness unit, LU. Okay. One LU is the same as one dB. And if anybody has used an RMS meter, we mentioned this briefly last week. Um, the loudness units are very similar to RMS measurements. Can you tell us again what RMS is? So root, RMS stands for root mean squared. Um, but that's just a mathematical name. It's it's related to the power of the signal. Okay. The, the simple way of thinking about it is it's like an average. It's not really an average, but it's it's close enough. Okay. Um, and that's a pretty good indication of loudness. That's what I used to use when I started out. In fact, when I started out, I was using 
um, a VU meter, which is an old style needle meter. And that measures something pretty much like RMS. It's not exactly, but it's pretty close. Um, and I still actually prefer using a VU meter even to a pure RMS meter. Um, and we'll talk about that more in a, in a minute. I mean, the other thing to talk about, I think, is EQ metering, um, which is much simpler. We've all used uh, DAWs that have some kind of frequency analysis in them. And I don't really think you should ever make a final judgment on sound using an analyzer, but they're really good for training our ears and for figuring out whether our monitoring is lying to us or not. So if you're listening to the mix and thinking, this just sounds really weak and bass light, but the, the analyzer says there's plenty of bass, then you probably need to invest in some acoustic treatment. I see. Or a really good pair of headphones. That's something I didn't mention from when we were talking about metering. One of the ways, and another way to get around the fact that you're mixing and mastering on the same equipment is if you get a really good pair of headphones, by which I mean something like, I mean, I'm wearing a pair of Sennheiser HD 650s. They cost 300 pounds, so that's 400, 500 bucks. Um, but they're worth it because they are much more accurate than most headphones. And so you can compare what a really good pair of headphones tells you with what your room is telling you. And chances are, if you listen on the headphones and think, oh, it sounds, you know, and then you take it out into the world, that could be more reliable than what you're hearing from your monitoring if there's a problem in, in the room, for example. Wow. So a really good pair of headphones can be an interest, a useful kind of check. And they're open backs too. So they're probably going to be a little noisy if you actually decide to wear them in public. They're going to be totally noisy. I mean, in fact, a few times I've kind of taken them off without hitting the uh, the stop button, and I'm kind of horrified at what's been pumping into my ears. But it's just because so much sound comes out the back of them <laughs> right. um, that yeah, they're just way louder than you would expect. So yeah, I mean, they're they're pretty specialist, but they they're something of an industry standard. So you're going to find lots of people out there are familiar with them, and you know they're they're very reliable. So that's another option. Okay. I think the other thing that I would say about measuring EQ via metering is to use it for clues. You can use it to train your ears. You can use it to learn what frequencies, are, you know, if you, if you hear too much of something, you can just sweep around with a parametric and, and, and figure out what frequency it is. And over time, you'll start to get an instinct for that, which is really valuable. It's really valuable in general, but particularly for mastering. The other thing I would say is if you have a mix that has a pretty full arrangement, um, you know, you've got bass, drums, keyboards, guitars, vocals. Pretty much every frequency is going to be represented there. If you look at the analyzer and it's not reasonably even over the whole frequency spectrum, that might be a clue that you need to do something. I see. Okay, so when you're getting into mastering and kind of getting up to speed and figuring out how things go, if you look at the analyzer and see there's a big dip at 200 hertz, put in a parametric EQ and try boosting it. See what happens. Um, you know, see whether you like it or not. You need to be careful because even if it sounds terrible, that might be because your monitoring is telling you there's too much in the room. Right. Or it might just be that it's not appropriate. And and you can't, you need to be careful if you just have, you know, uh, acoustic guitar and voice, there's not going to be any super low bass in the signal. So, you know, you need to kind of connect what am I listening to with what am I seeing and does that make sense? But as a way of getting started, it can be a useful way of just figuring out what's needed because we, as a rule of thumb, we tend to like a sound that has 
a balanced frequency response over the whole spectrum. And then it kind of starts to tail off about 10K. Hmm. Um, from there, you kind of get this gentle roll off. Um, there's a really good free analyzer made by Voxengo called Span. Um, yeah. I, I recommend that. And if you if you look around in the options for it, there's a mastering setting because quite a lot of analyzers give you so much detail. You can't see the wood for the trees. And the first analyzer I ever had uh, was, was actually a, a consumer, you know, just from a piece of home hi-fi. And it only had, I think, six or eight bands on it. So it's very broad and rough. But it just gave me an idea of the overall shape of the music. And the mastering preset and span does the same thing. It just kind of gives you this very slow, very smooth curve. So you can see the overall shape of it quite clearly. I see. And then there are other kinds of metering that you can get. There's a thing called a correlator, which measures the stereo width of your mix. Um, there's a video about that on my website, which we could give people the link for. Um, again, maybe that's something we can come back to in a future episode if people are interested. I have just recently released my own plugin called Dynameter, which is a way of measuring the dynamics of the mix, which is, we won't go into in too much detail, but it's the difference between the peak level and the loudness. Um, and it helps tell you whether your mix is uh, completely crushed, like a loudness war casualty, or actually whether maybe it's a bit too dynamic. Um for optimal playback on the different streaming platforms and for the best translation. Um, so there's a whole range of different metering things and people can play with that stuff as much as they like. But metering is the second M of mastering. And the final one is mindset. So what do I mean by the mastering mindset? I mentioned it briefly back at the beginning of the, the this episode. It's one of the valuable things about going to a professional mastering engineer is they've never heard your music before. They come to it completely fresh. They just put it on as though they're somebody who's just bought the CD and give you an instant reaction. They don't know anything about the problems that you had when recording. They don't know anything about the challenges that you had, the stuff that you've sweated blood over. They just go, well, there's not enough bass or the vocals are too loud or, um, you know, they have a completely impartial third party perspective on it. And that's really valuable. It's I think that's one of the most valuable things about getting somebody else to master your music. Um, I don't like mastering my own music for that reason. Um, the risk is that when you know everything that went into making a recording or mix sound the way that it does, you can make excuses. You know, you listen to it and you think, oh, that snare sound is a bit boxy. And it's like, yeah, but we tried this, this, that, and the other. And, you know, that's the best we could get. Whereas a mastering guy might just come in and go, okay, I'm going to put in a parametric EQ there, notch that out, and there. Sounds much better. Um, the challenge, if you want to master your own music, is how to get that perspective, that mastering mindset, when you've done everything else in the recording and the mix and you're sitting in the same room and listening on the same speakers and all the rest of it. So I have a few suggestions to, to help people with that. Uh, the first one is just time. Um, if you're going to be mastering your own music, don't mix until the day before you have to send it off to be pressed or uploaded for, for distribution and then just whack a load of presets on it and hope for the best. Hmm. Give yourself at least two weeks, maybe three weeks. You know, have a complete break. For so it. just Finish let it, it sit. Just, just let. Well, yeah, just let it sit. Just don't listen to it. Just stop thinking about it. You know, you've been working intensively on it for however long it is. Just take a break. Go and do something else. Start a new project, or just listen to music for pleasure. Whatever it is to to kind of uh, 
disconnect your memory, really, of what you're listening to from what went into listening to it. So that, And just that simple step means that when you come back to it, uh, you will have more of a, a fresh perspective on it, which is what you're looking for. Okay. Another suggestion is to use different monitors. Now, you know, there's not going to be many of us who can afford to have the, a dedicated mastering room, um, but lots of us do have really nice stereo systems, hi-fi systems, um, or nice headphones for listening, wherever we listen to music for pleasure. If you, uh, I mean, lots of mastering these days can be done in the box, you know, can, without any external gear um, in, in the way that we're talking about now. That's not necessarily how it would be if you took it to a, to a pro mastering studio, but um, there's, you know, loads of great mastering plugins and things available these days. So maybe you can move to a laptop and just plug that into your hi-fi in your lounge, sit in the sweet spot, and listen to it there. And the advantage of that is, because that's where you sit and listen to music for pleasure all day, every day, you're going to hear it in a very objective way. This is true, but why don't you just do your whole mix there, then? Well, most of us have a girlfriend or a wife who might have something to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually... So when I was at college... Um, in the second, in my second year, I I got terrible grades because I recorded an album for some friends of mine, um, and w there was a pair of NS10s in the studio there, and I mixed it three times on those NS10s, and every time I took it home, I hated it, and in the end, I dismantled my stereo and took my home hi-fi speakers, which were nothing special, and amp into the studio and set those up and mixed it on those, <laughs> and surprise, surprise it worked much better. It still wasn't perfect, um, but just because I knew those speakers so intimately, gotcha. um, I got a much better result. So, yeah, I think it's more about practicality. I mean, again, I'm not... You, you, you wouldn't necessarily actually literally master it in your living room. You could, and if your hi-fi system is good enough, that might be something to try. Um, but even if you just take it in, listen to it in that situation and make notes. Okay. You know, and then go, but and you think, ah, oh, th that bass sounds a bit boomy. Chances are, if you take it back into the studio and listen to it, actually, you might then suddenly notice it in the studio as well. You know, our ears get acclimatized to the place where we're working all the time, and you tune out some of the problems that might be there. So, just hearing it in a different context can can kind of, again, it's it's getting distance from what you were listening to before. Headphones are another great option. You know. Um, providing they're really decent quality, uh, they can give you a completely different perspective. And I'm, I don't think you can master on headphones. I can't master on headphones. But they can be a really valuable extra perspective. Make, makes sense. So those are some suggestions about how you can get into the mastering mindset. Um, another one is to, well, make sure you only work on stereo mixes. Uh, lots of people are talking about stem mastering these days where you have, you know, the keyboards or the guitars and this, that, separate. I don't like to work in that way. I always want to work from stereo mixes where I possibly can. And I recommend it to you guys as well. Uh, Meaning all the instruments are playing? At, or what do you mean by that? It's, it's, it's the mix down. So, you know, you have okay. your, you have your uh, whatever it is, 24, 32, 64 tracks for the, for the song. And you've balanced everything. And you've done compression and reverb. Everything's set. Hit export 
and save it as a stereo file. Okay, as that's a, really as, a, as a WAV that you could import into iTunes and listen to the song. Yeah. Take take a collection of those, all of those, and bring them into a completely new session in your DAW and, and master that. Okay, so I like to have all of the songs laid out in a line in front of me in the order they're going to play on the album. So I can trim the beginnings and ends. I can do the gaps. I mean, I actually use WaveLab to master in, and you literally can create a CD master with WaveLab. So you can put the start and end IDs on. You can put in the uh, the track information. You can you can do everything to, to create a CD master. You don't necessarily have to go to that length yourself. There's other ways of doing that. But um, Studio if, One has a really sweet feature. It's exactly. Called- they have song mode and they have project mode, and that's basically what WaveLab does, but it's built into the software. Exactly, and you can switch between the two. I really like yeah. that. In fact, I experimented with Studio One, um, and I was almost tempted away from WaveLab. They just didn't have quite enough variety of the crossfade shapes for me. Uh, <laughs> got to have those crossfade shapes. You've got to have those crossfade shapes. Um, if the, Now, that works. You can lay them all out in a line if your DAW allows you to put plugins onto the clips, right? Onto So you can have an individual set of settings for every song, because that's another crucial part of this. Mastering is not finding a single setting and running an entire album through the same setting for all the songs. Right. Mastering the way that I do it and the way I hope, if anybody's listening to this, is going to try and do it, is you listen to a song... You have a completely bespoke set of processing settings for that song. Then you move to the next song and you start from scratch again. So you adjust the levels slightly from song to song. You adjust the EQ slightly. You adjust the compression, the dynamics. And that's what enables you to bring everything closer together, to find the kind of the center of gravity, the line through the middle of the album that that stops it sounding like a bunch of songs that were thrown together and makes it sound like a cohesive listening experience and it also helps with the mastering mindset right because suddenly you can't tweak the level of the kick drum or pull the vocal back or whatever you have to work with what you've got and that's very much the mastering mindset and i really think that's crucial it's this for the same reason i recommend people don't put mastering processing on the stereo output bus of their mix you know there's no theoretical difference in terms of the quality or anything else when you do that, except that when you're mixing, you've got too many things to think about. You know, you, you're, you've you got the whole song, you've got all the internal balance, you've got the sections of the song, you've got the, the, the effects that you're using, the processing, the automation, all that stuff. It, for me personally, it's, it's just too much to think about how loud is that in comparison to the song I mixed two days ago at that stage, you know? And pulling all of those into a single session where you could line them up would be a nightmare. So export everything as stereo files, and then bring them in. And, you know, if if you're mastering your own, your own music and you decide, well, I have to go back and tweak whatever it is, so be it. You know, the nice thing about Studio One is you can then flip back to song mode, do some tweaks, and then it, that, that kind of new version gets automatically updated in the project mode, right? Yep. Um, for me, that would mean going back to, I mean, I quite often mix in Logic. So it would mean going back to Logic and re-exporting the song. It's a bit of a hassle, but if you can't get the result you want at the mastering stage, that's the best thing to do is to tweak the mix. Right. But for the mastering, you have all of the songs laid out. If you can't put individual processing on each song, give each song its own track. 
So in that case, so so you know, you put song one on track one, you put song two on track two, song three on, and then lay them out in a kind of diagonal line across the screen, right? So you hit play and it plays through, but then you can put your different sets of effects and settings on each channel strip right. in the mixer. So I mean, one of the analogies I some people say, what is mastering? I sometimes say it's it's mixing is blending the tracks to create a song. Mastering is blending the songs to create an album. And if you if you do it this way, where you've got each song on its own track, you've literally got a fader for every song. So it's it's like mixing the songs. Right. You know, right. Um, and that will work. And that's a really good way. It's a good doing. way of looking at it. And that way you can there are so many advantages of doing this way. I mean, it it gets you into that other mindset and you can quickly flick from one song to another to to compare them to each other. So you can listen to one play into another, or you can go, well, okay, how does it sound if I play track ten and then track one? You know, do they do they sound like they're in the same from the same album? Right. From the same kind of acoustic world, or do they not work suddenly? Maybe I need to tweak something there. Um and that's a real luxury. When I started out, I was recording stuff. It was I was mastering onto tape, on it was digital tape, but um so you know, you started with track one, you did track one, then you moved on and if you got to track four and you realized you didn't like track one, you either lived with it or you went back and punched in, which kind of sounds simple, except that you have to have, when you when you did that on digital tapes, you would get error blocks. And if the error blocks got too bad when you punched in and out, uh, it would fail its analyzation and you'd have to start from scratch. So, you know, there's, there's so much flexibility we have these days, um, but it, it's, it really helps with the, the mastering mindset, which is which is what we're talking about. It makes sense. I like it. So two final tips to do with mastering mindset. The first one is work fast. So you won't, I mean, I typically would prefer to master an album in somewhere between four to six hours. You know, that's, that's kind of sort of 10, 12 songs. Um, in terms of the sound work, there's, then you have other stuff doing the gaps and on all the, kind of the the housekeeping stuff and running the masters and stuff but the actual work on the sound I, if it takes more than a day for a single album then I start to wonder whether something's gone wrong now that's not to say that everybody listening to this is going to be able to do it that fast to begin with the first mm. album that I mastered took me 2 days and then uh my mentor said yeah that's good but do it again so it, it took me another 2 days but definitely thinking those kind of time scales rather rather than weeks or months which, you know, I, I regularly get people say, oh, I've been mastering this for the last, whatever, you know, six weeks, and well, I still why, can't get it right. Why work fast? It's, again, to do with mindset, right? It's to do with, it's one of the things that um, a mastering, a, a real mastering engineer would bring to the project is that kind of, that first listen experience, you know? Um, right. How does it sound when you just blitz through it? Now, I mean, some mastering engineers will do that. They will sit and listen to the entire album in sequence from beginning to end before they touch a fader. I tend not to, um, partly because clients are always not happy to pay for that. Um, <laughs> but that's I think that's a very valid way to start, you know, because then you get an idea of the shape of the album, how all the songs kind of interrelate, and you can make notes and kind of go, well, you know, track three didn't quite hit it, or, you know, track four is supposed to be quiet, but it sounded really loud after track uh, five, you know, whatever the, the judgments are. And I think you have to do that over in a relatively compressed period of time. 
Otherwise, you lose that kind of immediacy. Uh, you lose that instant reaction, and you get back into making excuses for things and second guessing. Um, and you know, it's it's a bit like maybe if I'm reading a book, you know, some fiction, I like to read it fairly fast. You know, if you read a couple of chapters and then put it down for three weeks and then come back to it, you lose a sense of where you are in the in in the, the whole of the piece you know sure, sure. um and i think the same thing's true of, of music of, of albums so yeah it's it's going to take you time to to kind of build up the skills and and get your ear in but wherever possible you know be bold big big brush you know listen to it go oh it's not loud enough turn it up yeah that's better okay bit of bass bit of treble how do i feel um rather than kind of you know agonizing over it and and and, and at the point where you find yourself going around in circles, it's probably time to stop. Um, having said that, one of the big things about mastering is just attention to detail. Sometimes I wonder, what is it? Because lots of my clients I know have ears that are every bit as good as mine. And they have monitoring that's maybe not as good as mine, but really good. Okay. And so I think to myself, well, you could master this yourself. But they still prefer to come to me. And and part of it is just that third party perspective thing, you know. Right. They've kind of lost focus on it. Part of it is just they they respect my opinion, which is really flattering. But I think another part of it is I just I'm will not let go of things. Um, you know, it, if there's a track that's just not working, the number of times I've kind of got to a point, I thought, oh, okay, this is as good as I've got to, and that I oh, just try, and suddenly some tiny little EQ move, just half a dB or a dB there, something. And suddenly it, it comes to life, you know, in a way yeah. that it didn't before. Yeah. So that means I'm telling you two completely opposite things, right? Because I'm saying work fast, but also just keep going until it's right. And you have to somehow find a balance between those things. And that's, you know, that's what take that's where the experience is valuable. You know, when you when you start out, you kind of you don't know how how good can I make this. Um and after you've been doing it for a few years straight you kind of get to the point where you listen to something and you go yeah okay right this is going to be that good and when i get it there i'll be satisfied so yeah that's that's tricky i'm not trying to discourage people you can definitely do this stuff yourself and get great results um but it does take time you've got to put some hours in to to figure this stuff out now that makes sense and though the last two things you said may seem contradictory what how you ended it off with having a balance seems like you have to do that. Yeah, mastering is all about balance. And that's something I'm going to talk about a lot in the in the next two episodes where we're talking about compression and EQ, the 3 Bs. Balance, balance, balance. and balance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's it's balancing songs against each other, balancing EQ against each other, balancing levels against each other and and just yeah, finding a balance in your working methods of, you know, enough time to get it right, but not kind of losing your life to it. Right. Um, so the final uh, thing I want to mention to do with mindset, which I'm not going to go on about too much because we're going to come back to it over and over again, is to use reference tracks. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges, you know, you have your home studio, you want to master your own stuff, you've you've got some acoustic treatment, you've got the best speakers you can afford, you've bought yourself a fancy pair of headphones, Still, how what is stuff supposed to sound like? How are you supposed right. to know what things are supposed to sound like? Um, for me, I was lucky. I had other engineers who told me. You know, they would come in and say, "No, that's too bassy. That's too." 
nobody has that that luxury anymore. Right. Um, so the solution is reference tracks. Find stuff that you think sounds amazing everywhere. You know, it sounds amazing in your car. It sounds amazing on your iPod. It sounds amazing on your phone, your TV, wherever. Those should be your reference tracks in a genre that's kind of similar to what you're working on. Um, bring them into your DAW, turn them down to begin with so that they match the loudness of your mix. And you can use the loudness meter that you've got because I told you to get it earlier on in the show um, <laughs> to measure the loudness of the two and make sure that they're reasonably matched. Because otherwise, you'll just think whichever one is louder sounds better. Right. And if stuff's been professionally mastered, it will be louder. Even if it's conservative in terms of the loudness was, it will be louder. So you can't turn your own stuff up, right? Because it'll just start clipping. So you turn the mastered version down, and then you compare them. And then you can hear how things are supposed to sound on your system, on your monitoring, whatever it is. And if you balance what you're doing with the reference tracks, you're going to get great results. Loudness comes after that, and we'll talk about that later on a later show. Um, but yeah, reference tracks are your friends. Awesome, man. Makes perfect sense. Really good info. Good. That means we've got to the moment you've all been waiting for. The mastering maxim. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, we need some music, don't we? We need a kind of some kind of apocalyptic sting at this point to... <laughs> We'll see um, about that. <laughs> and this week, uh, it goes right back to the beginning. It goes right back to the monitoring. But it connects beautifully with what we've just been talking about. When you're mastering, only have one gain setting for your monitoring. Okay? So when you're mixing or recording, you know, if you, uh, you've just done a full-on rock arrangement and then you record or mix acoustic guitar with a singer. It's a lot quieter. You turn it up in your DAW, it's still a lot quieter, so you just turn the volume up a bit, right? The monitoring volume. Yeah. That's fine when you're mixing and recording, not when you're mastering. You need to figure out what your mastering level is going to be, and you need to stick with it. To do that, you need your reference tracks, which is why this ties in with what I was just saying. Uh -huh. Pick your reference tracks, load them into the DAW, don't touch the gain, just play them back completely flat and adjust your monitoring volume so it's comfortable. Now, you need to be careful when you do this because if you choose something that's super loud, you're going to be tempted to master everything you do super loud. So I'm going to add into this, I recommend, if you get one of these new loudness meters... Um, I mean, I, there's, there's one by TC Electronic. There's one, I like the one by Lcast. Um, but there's a lot of really affordable options out there. There's loads of stuff. And the great thing is because it's a standard, it's an internationally agreed standard, they all give you the same information. They right. look a bit different. They have different features. But a loudness meter is a loudness meter. If it measures LUFS, you're gold. Loudness meters give you three different types of loudness measurement. And again, we'll talk about these more in a later episode. They give you the momentary loudness, which is kind of, the loudness now and now and now and now. They give you the short-term loudness, which is a kind of an average thing that's more similar to the RMS value. And then they give this thing called integrated loudness, which is the overall loudness. So it won't be as loud as the loudest moments. It won't be as quiet as the quietest moments. It'll be somewhere in between. Whatever your track is, 
measure the integrated loudness, measure the, the, the put the loudness meter on it, measure it from beginning to end, and then adjust it so that, let's say, minus 12 LUFS. Okay. Now, if you're using Skrillex or Foo Fighters for your reference track, what you're going to find is they're going to read much louder than that. They could be up at minus six, minus four, minus five. If you try and match those, you're going to be competing in the loudness wars. And I'll we'll talk about the, the pros and cons of that in another episode. Okay. But my advice is to begin with, don't do that. Turn them down. So so if if a song measures minus six and you're aiming for minus 12, you've got to turn it down by six dBs, yeah? That makes sense? Yep. If you measure a song and it's uh, minus 16, you would have to turn it up by 4 dBs. If you do that, you might get some clipping. So if you really want it to sound like that, you might decide to, okay, I'm going to use minus 16 as my reference instead of the minus 12 that Ian's recommending. Um, but I think minus 12 is a good compromise. It's not stupid loud, but it's loud enough that you're going to be in the right ballpark for other stuff that's out there. I see. Once your reference track is playing at minus 12, the integrated loudness, the short-term loudness could go louder, could go quieter for the quiet sections. That's okay. The overall loudness is minus 12. Then you adjust your monitoring gain so that it's comfortable. Okay? Uh, yep. Then you mark the position, and that's your mastering level. Huh. And the reason for that is, over time, you will learn so much from having done that. Because for, for a start, you'll start to hear loudness. Loudness meters are useful, but your ears are even more useful. If something sounds loud, right. you know that it really is loud and you can turn right. it down. And you're making a you're making a genuine objective decision about that the sound of that song and the, the mastering of that song. When you turn it down, it will change your opinion of the EQ, your brain's opinion of the EQ, and you might do a different EQ on it than you would have done before you did it. Okay? Yeah. So your monitoring game is always the same. Then you adjust your levels within the DAW, and that's the first step. That's the first thing I teach on the Home Mastering Masterclass course and go into more detail about it. And I've had people say it was worth the entire price of admission to the course just for that one piece of information. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds ridiculous when I say it, but try it. It really is a mastering maxim. Over time, you will just you'll you'll start to hear more. You'll start to you'll instantly be able to start making judgments about songs when you put them on because you really? have this fixed frame of reference. Now, finding what the mastering level can be can be tricky to start with. You might pick something that's slightly too loud or slightly too quiet. So if you find when you're working on stuff, you're always tempted to be pushing the level up, it's probably a little bit quiet. If the meters say it's loud enough, but you're starting to get ear fatigue, you know, you're starting to feel like it's too much, then you need to ease it back. And if you just kind of pay attention to it over a day or two, you'll settle on a on a sweet spot that's comfortable for you. And once you've found it, stick with it. Um, there's one exception to that rule. <clears throat> you can also have a, a, a listening level that's, I would say, 12 dBs lower. That's where the, the dim button on my monitor control is set. Right. Because it's useful to flick between those two. I quite often make EQ decisions at full listening level and then actually fine-tune the loudness decisions with the monitors dimmed. Really? Yeah. Um, so I'm saying only ever have one gain setting, but you can have two. You can have 
full level, full mastering <laughs> level, and a dim setting that's something like minus 12 below that. Um, and just flicking between those two, it's slightly more complicated because you, but your brain is clever enough to, to recognize those two things, um, providing you don't vary where they are at all. Over time, you start to learn all kinds of stuff and uh, a whole new world will open up to you. <laughs> That's a sec- nice secret tip. I like the mastering maxim of the day. There you go. Awesome, man. Well, that was a wealth of information. Yeah, I hope people, uh, it's, we got quite a long run, running time for this episode, so I hope you guys listening have uh, have hung in there with us and feel like it was worth worth the wait. But uh, yeah, I think... Um, I think th- this stuff is is key, you know. Um, we'll get into all kinds of more nitty-gritty stuff in the next few weeks, but keeping those three M's in mind is really going to help you if you're interested in mastering your own music or just understanding what's going to happen when it goes to a professional mastering engineer, what you should expect, right. um, you know, and, and how the process works. Absolutely. I think you have, you have to think with these before you take the next step. So I'm glad we covered it early. Good. I'm glad you're glad because... Otherwise, my whole idea of doing this backwards would make no sense. <laughs> so that's the very end of the chain, right? Monitoring, mindset, and metering. Next week, we're going to step down the chain one more and talk about limiting, which is, I would say, the minimum requirement for being able to do mastering. And I bet there's going to be a lot of misunderstandings that you're going to clear up for us as far as limiting. I'm looking forward to that. No, I'm planning to confuse the hell out of you. <laughs> No, hope yeah, exactly. Hope hopefully I can uh, I think there's a yeah, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about limiting and I hadn't thought of it until now but I just figured out what next week's maxim is going to be. Ah, awesome. Can't wait. Well, again, I'm Steve Cherubino from edmmr.com. I'm Ian Shepherd from productionadvice.co.uk. And make sure you go over to our website at themasteringshow.com. We have there all the shows, all the show notes. And I highly encourage you guys to sign up for our mailing list called The Hot List over on themasteringshow.com. This is the hot list just for The Mastering Show. It'll keep you abreast of the latest things we do, the latest shows that come out, and all that good stuff. Wait, don't forget, subscribe. Leave us a review. Leave us a comment. Tell your friends how much you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, how much insanely useful information you've got from it. Spread the word so that we can keep doing this forever. Thanks, guys, for doing that. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening.